your weekend is not complete without the First Lady of New York Radio. It's the Joan Hamburg Show. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Two amazing guests today, straight ahead on the Joan Hamburg Show. You're going to meet Delia Efron, best-selling novelist, a screenwriter. She co-wrote with her sister, Nora Efron, You've Got Mail. And when she lost her husband of many years, she thought her romantic life was all over. But guess what? At age 72, a new chapter was just beginning. So come meet Delia Efron. And my second guest, really fascinating, when her mother died at the age of 64, Eleanor Reeser, a Broadway baby, went through her mom's belongings and found an old leather purse full of letters, 56 letters written in German by her father. She found a whole new world right behind her and ahead of her. Join me today. I'm Joan Hamburg, and it's all right in front of you. The First Lady of New York Radio. This is Joan Eats. I'm a cookie monster. I love cookies, really good cookies. And if you're a cookie person, then you know about Levan Bakery, L-E-V-A-I-N, levanbakery.com. Started as a little neighborhood institution. Now, over 10 bakeries, New York, Bethesda, Maryland, Boston, Chicago, Georgetown. The story began 26 years ago when two friends met through a shared hobby. They were swimmers. Well, they came good friends with sports people together, and then they opened their old retail shop in the basement of a brownstone on the Upper West Side. And they were obsessed with the world's best chocolate chip cookies. They bake everything on site every day. Now, you can buy their cookies three ways. At one of the locations, online at their e-commerce gift box business, and the newest way, which is what my daughter found, a local grocery store. The Van Bakery cookies, and if you've never tasted them, you've got to. I mean, they're famous already. They're in groceries in the frozen food aisle in our area. And if you go on to Levan, L-E-V-A-I-N, bakery.com, you'll find a list of all the stores. Whole Foods has them, King's, ShopRite, Citarella, Village Fairway, King Cullen, and they come frozen, ready to bake. Now, if you buy them at the bakery, they're enormous. They're six foot. I mean, six ounce. You don't want six foot. I could eat that, though. Six ounce cookies. The frozen cookies are minis, two ounces, perfect. And each box has eight cookies and sells for under $10. They were $9.49 at ShopRite in New Jersey and close enough at Whole Foods. And they come in chocolate chip, walnut, two chip, chocolate chip, dark chocolate, peanut butter, oatmeal, raisin. And here's the deal. You just put them in a preheated oven or toaster oven for five to seven minutes till they're really heated through. And you've got Levan hot, freshly baked cookies right from the oven. You can even undercook them if you like them really fresh and chewy. You can send a gift anywhere in the country. They've been shipping cookies long before mail order went mainstream. And 
I think they're they're very unusual. For me, sometimes they're even too chocolatey, but not for official chocolate chip cookie people. You're going to love them. And they come wrapped in their blue organza ribbon. You can overnight ship them. Try it. And you can check where all the bakeries are. They're on the west side of Manhattan, the east side. They're in Wayne Scott. And if you've never had a Levant cookie, you're going to say thank you, Joan. So join the Cookie Monster Club and try what a lot of people consider the best chocolate chip around. Don't go away because we have lots more to come on WABC. The First Lady of New York Radio, Joan Hamburg. Entertaining and informative. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome, everyone, to the Joan Hamburg Show. And I have with me Delia Efron, who's a great novelist, a screenwriter, co-wrote You've Got Mail, among other things. And her new book, Left on 10th, A Second Chance of Life, I have to tell you guys, is an amazing read. I couldn't put it down. And of course, this woman really knows how to write. And she takes you along on her journey. And a lot of it is very sad. And you think, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? And then, well, I'm going to let Delia tell you. But she went through a lot. Um, Early on in this, she lost her sister, Nora, one of four girls, all writers, and then her husband, a writer, Jerry, both Jerry and Nora get got cancer and passed away from that. And then Delia did what a lot of us do when we have circumstances like that. You sort of take care of things you never thought about. In this case, Delia's husband's landline. And as she says... She ended up in Verizon hell. But on the other hand, she owes a lot to Verizon because if she didn't do what she always does, wrote about it, got in the New York Times, her life would have been a lot different. So welcome, Delia. Congratulations on the book. Thank you. And let's go back to the annoying Verizon and how, as you said, you complain the way you know best. You write about it. Yeah, um, you know, I, I, well, if you've ever lost someone that you've, I mean, I, I'd been married to Jerry for 32 years and I was so displaced. And then you're trying to do everything that you can to sort of organize your new world. And um, when I disconnected his landline, Verizon crashed my internet. And I, uh, I spent, I swear, weeks on the phone with them getting disconnected and then having to call back and obey their prompts, which is such an upsetting thing to have to do. You have to be polite to them after they're rude to you. It's very agitating. So I wrote a piece that was both sad and funny about this, this battle with Verizon. And, uh, you know, and, and five months later, really, it was, it was, wasn't in, Instantly, but five months later, and it was three days after the first year anniversary of Jerry's death, I got an email through my website from Peter. Peter was a psychiatrist, is 
a psychiatrist. He was then living in the Bay Area in Marin County. And he wrote me and he had the same problem, disconnecting his wife's phone. I mean, it turns out that is a universal problem. You end up, I got so much mail on that from people who have been absolutely tortured by their phone companies. So um, he said, you know, we we had two or three dates, I don't know, 54 years ago. And you didn't when remember, When you were 18. Right? No, I did not remember. I still do not remember. Um, I was thinking maybe I should have hypnosis or something to remember. <laughs> he said we went to a football game, and I have some memory of being at a Columbia football game with some snow falling. And he said, yes, snow did fall, but I don't remember him. Anyway, I got this completely charming note, and Nora had fixed us up. So it was so amazing that, you know, she was gone and yet there she was and here he was. And, you know, I, I, of course, I, first thing I did, two things. I sent it to a girlfriend to see what she thought of this note and if I should answer it. And she said, yes, he sounds like someone to get to know. And the other thing I did was I Googled him, of course. And I finally figured out, I couldn't find a picture, but I figured out that he was an expert in sexual harassment, that he'd written two books about, you know, men in in places of authority who use it to abuse women. And he was an expert on that. He testified in court on behalf of women. And in the 80s, which was long before it was what fashionable in any way to do that, I, I thought, oh, my God, this is a substantive man. So I, we started writing. And, you know, I was not looking to fall in love. I actually hadn't really cr- something that actually crossed my mind. And the next thing I knew, I, we were we were in love. And we were writing these endlessly long emails. And then we started talking for hours on the phone. And it was, you know, it was just. It was kind of a miracle. And anyway, as you you know from reading my book, what happened next, which is that, of course, when you, you know, if you fall in love in your 70s and death is so close, you can reach out and touch it. You, you have to, you have to tell everything that you might have had or could have. And I, I knew that I had, I had been a bone match for my sister Nora, but they didn't wouldn't use me, and she didn't want it anyway, right, but Nora they wouldn't had use a blood. me. Let's tell, remind people, Nora had a blood uh, cancer. Yeah. Oh, right. that, Nora had leukemia. Uh, I mean, she had myelodysplastic syndrome, with, which morphs almost inevitably into leukemia, and hers did. And uh, the only way you can really cure AML, which is a, a acute myelogenous leukemia, is to have a bone marrow transplant. And I knew that I was a match for her, but they tested my marrow and they saw my marrow was a teeny bit wonky and they didn't want to use me. So I was being tested every six months just in case something might happen. This had been going on for eight years. But you were okay. But it Totally. Was just I was 100% the, fine. Every time they did my blood, my, my doctor said, this is the most boring good. blood I've seen today. Goodbye. Mm-hmm. Come back in six months. And, and then... You know, uh, I went in four months after falling in love with Peter. I mean, it was it was such a passionate relationship, and we were so it was so powerful. And 
I went into the doctor for my six-month checkup, and she ran my blood, and I had leukemia. There it was. There it was. Mm. You bet. Right there. Right. You had a gift given to you, and then you're terrified it's going to be taken away. Yeah, right. Because you had lived through it. Yes, I did. Um, I guess, I mean, my book is really about four years of my life left on when things so wondrous and so tragic happened to me that after I survived it all, I thought, you know, and I and my writer's heart started beating again because, believe me, getting cured from leukemia is quite, it was quite, Horrible. oh, my God, harrowing. It was. Uh, I thought I would never write again. And then I just, I, you know, I started to get well, really well. And I looked at those years and I thought, you, this is everything you could ever want to write about. Really, you've just had this amazing thing happen to you. You law, law, right. um, and, um, you know, just so serious loss. Then love again. Then threat again, of death. Again, a threat of loss. Yeah, and and yes, and and then so much luck, good and bad, that it made me wonder about things like miracles. And I thought, well. You know, I have to write this. I mean, life just gave me a story. I'm talking to Delia Efron, left on 10th. Her memoir, Her Second Chance of Life, her rebirth in many ways. And if you've ever known anyone or heard about the treatment for her particular blood cancer, people, it's worse, people say, than the disease. And many people just give up. They cannot go through it. And you tried to give up, but your community could not possibly allow that, including your new love, whom you had married after you were diagnosed, Peter. Yes. We, we, it was that weekend that we were sitting there, and I knew I was checking into the hospital on Tuesday, and, and I was making French toast and thinking about where my life was now, and Peter suddenly said, you know, we should get married. And then he just kind of heard himself say it. And then he stood up and said, will you marry me? And mm. and I said, yes. I mean, we always thought we would, almost from the very beginning. And so we we went out the next day and we got a license and a ring. And I checked into the hospital on Tuesday. Oh. And then we got married in the dining room on the 14th floor with a few close friends. You know, this book, Left on 10th, is also about the power of friendship. Exactly. Because I was not just carried by Peter, but I was carried by the love of my girlfriends, and um, I call them women warriors. But, you know, when you get sick, I think you kind of have to think about who can take this journey with me, who will be the right people. And I just had this amazing group of friends, not a big group, because, you know, you can't take a lot of people on a trip like this. It's not a party. Not but, at all. you know, I... But I was so nurtured by them and by Peter. And and the treatment is so grueling. I mean, not just the chemo and how you get so sick from it and you can't eat and you're taking thousands of pills. And I became, I was in the hospital 100 days and I oh, was, I I was just a rag that. of a person. And I just kept, mm-hmm. at that point, I was so depressed. Uh, have you ever been deeply depressed? No, not like that, but no, you're no, such I a good writer been. that, but we felt what you were feeling, and uh-huh. that's what's so extraordinary. 
I kept shaking my head and saying, is she, well, you know, I knew, of course, you were going to come out the other end. But because I wrote the book. <laughs> because you wrote the book and because I have friends who play bridge with you. Oh, She's oh. going to survive. She's <laughs> going to survive. And, right. You know, like, how do you know? I know. <laughs> Don't ask. But yeah, I know. Anyway. You know, even my doctor said when she read the book, she started to worry about whether I was going to make it. Nobody, I know. You know that it was like, how I, could Trauma is what I love, through? and I need to keep, I do need to keep people turning the page. It's one of the things as a writer that's important to me. This is the way I like to read books. So, um, But you know what, Delia, and this is even before the hideous treatment, you know, I have friends who for through loss or divorce or whatever, will often say, I, I don't necessarily want another husband. I need a companion. I need a companion. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't you. It was different because you had plenty of companions, women yes. and men, you know, from a hairdresser on. No, you no, had, I, I have, you know, I am very bonded to a number of people who keep me right. floating. I, I, I am. And, and, I, and, you know, I was trying to think about that because I've been asked a lot about that. You know, is it brave to start another relationship or something like that? And I don't, you know, it just happened to me. I, I, didn't, I didn't know I was looking for it. And I, I think part of being alive is being open to things. And I, I just suspect I was open to it. But also I had had a very happy marriage. So I had good feelings about marriage as a safe and nurturing place. And so I, I think also, you know, I had this really crazy dream, which I wrote about in the book, which I, I really wanted to spend some time with Jerry after he died. And, you know, there's no way to do that. That's what's right. so awful about death. And I'd had a wonderful dream about Nora. And in dreams, people can really Your feel sister. like they're alive. So I said, I want to dream about Jerry. I want him to be with me in a dream. And I dreamed this dream in which he said to me, I want a divorce. And I said, what? And he said, yes, I want a divorce. And I said, but but we can still be friends, can't we? I mean, I can still come over and talk to you whenever I want, right? And he said, no. And he walked out the door. And I woke up in a state of complete shock. Because, of course, in a dream, it felt like Jerry. It absolutely right. was Jerry. It was Jerry. real. Yeah, it was absolutely real. And yet I knew it wasn't Jerry. It was me. I had this dream. And in this dream, I was telling myself, he is not there for you anymore. You have to go forward. He's not there to go into the next room and tell everything about your day and laugh and discuss your work and all that. He's not there. It was like I was being ruthless with myself. And and so I think I I think I understood that from that dream that I was really on my own. And he was and letting there you was go. Life to be had out there. Also, you know, I do like to have fun. I'm not real um out I'm not an extrovert exactly, although I can give an impression of one. But I'm, yes. I'm, um, I like to be alone a lot. But there, well, you're all right. I do like to have fun. I like to laugh. I think that 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 the joyful part of me wanted some exercise. But you were also willing to take a chance. I have friends who say, "I I can never have another real relationship. I'll never get undressed in front of a man ever. Yeah. I can't bear to look in the mirror myself." Yeah, that's a big thing. 
And here you are at 70 years old, and you are suddenly madly in love. I just went out the window. All those feelings went out the window when I met Peter. They just did. It was just so passionate. And and believe me, I'd be the first person to say that. Well, no, I wouldn't, actually. But... um, no, you would make uh, it funny. But, I, but or... I really understand that totally. I mean, wow, especially in this culture, you know. Of course, of course. And then you did brave things. You went to visit where he lives, and then he came back to New York. It, it's actually, it's quite an amazing story because everyone says, how does something like that happen? He also, we forgot to remind people, when he contacted you and everything, he had suffered loss too. He had lost his wife. Yes, his his wife had um, died of lung cancer. Although she's not a smoker, um, and um, uh, so he had experienced loss, and he had experienced loss when he was very young, which is that when he was seven, he was playing outside on Central Park West and one hundred and second Street or one hundred and third, and. Um, there he heard this giant scream and a crash, and he looked to the street, and his mother and sister were hit by a car. That's awful. And so that he had trauma from a young age. I mean, his sister survived, but his mother did not. And that was the last time he ever saw his mother. I mean, so he, he, I mean, the fact that Peter's a psychiatrist, that he's a healer, you know, that was also mm-hmm. part of the miracle for me. Who else could have taken me on this journey through hell, through the, you know, well, through this tunnel? Who else could ben, have been my guide but Peter? No, and he was there. Yeah, Even in I the mean, hospital, he was like they couldn't believe it. To it. So, and and when I was so depressed, of course, and, and my girlfriends are saying, you We're know, worried. look at her. She's, you know, are, are we letting her go? And, and he said, look, I'm reading the... I believe if we can get through this particular crisis, she will survive. And he said, you can't let a really depressed person make decisions for themselves. They don't have their proper mind available. But then he was just clear. He said it was hard as hell, but he, he knew that he just knew it. That, you would get through, and he would be there. Delia yeah, Efron, I mean, he her new such book. A, he's such a hero in the book. Part of he's what a hero the book is oh, totally. Part of why I think the book is you know is is getting as much love as it is. Is Peter? Is so we all listen. We all want Peter, Delia. Yeah, I know. Okay, but give us Peter. <laughs> but, but but I've but got him. <laughs> he's you got wonderful. him. But here's a question. When you go through that kind of experience, and I actually have a friend who went through that kind of treatment, and oh my God, it's beyond belief. It's so devastating and horrible. But I was curious, you survived, thank goodness, and you and Peter went home. And we forgot to mention that with all the losses, your beloved dog died too. So there wasn't an instant when something wasn't happening yeah it's but, it's really true uh, you know I'm, I'm i'm almost embarrassed to say this but the hardest thing for me to write in this book was the loss of, of honey i, I just understand. i i couldn't admit that i wasn't there when she died i, I had so mm. much trouble and i just kept forcing me you know a, a memoir has to tell the truth everything should tell the truth when you write but of course in this like book that. it was my rule to be honest so um i had to 
just keep forcing myself. And people have written me that that was, if you have a dog, you know the loss. Oh, so it's just unbearable. I know. And um, so part of that is also the rebirth of, of getting Charlotte, my new little pup. And, you know, this only thing that gets you over one dog is nothing really gets you over losing your dog. But but it does help to have the joy of a dog in your in your life. I it am, just really does. Um, I'm talking to Delia Ephron. But again, when I just you, want to say one you, thing. I think <clears throat> I've gotten a lot of mail on the, from this book, um, emails and stuff. And 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 lots of people have some uh, Peter, you know, somebody who got them through. Someone who who loved them, whether it was uh, someone they're in love with, or someone who was just very close to them, or a child, or their their grown child, or you know. But you need someone. You do need somebody with you. I, I really would say that if you're going to go through something that traumatic, it's helpful to have someone who's there every day. And pulling you through, who understands. Yeah, yeah, who believes in you, who believes in it, and, and who always buoys you. And knows that person who is mm-hmm. suffering so terribly is not the real you. It's yeah. the you that, oh, that has to so survive. That is so important, Joan. Thank you for saying that, yes. But you know, Delia, the curiosity, you survive the unsurvivable. You come home with this extraordinary human being, a, a devoted partner, a loving partner, was it, or could you not remember, the same as it was before he embarked upon this dangerous trip with you? Um, when, no. What uh, happened? I have to say that that, that we were in, in the midst of the, the heaviest romance, and believe me, this this actually put us into a quieter type of place. love. You know, that requires almost a suspension of it doesn't even require it it causes such a suspension of any that's what's one of the things that's so curing about falling in love is i all that all that loss i'd felt all that sorrow i mean all i could feel was a kind of a glow from being with peter from feeling sexually alive from feeling all of that and then you know boom this diagnosis and and it did immediately I say we we still we we still romantic, but that particular type Different. of romance requires a, mm-hmm. uh, it didn't it it put us into another place and and we had to really figure out we get along just incredibly well and we're you know it's it's a wonderful relationship but it of course it <laughs> it did you know affect that of course and Delia in addition to everything else one of four girls including the older girl, Nora Ephron, who, um, as Delia points out, ran as fast as she could throughout her life. And the girls had to have the inevitable comparison. And the fact that Nora Ephron died from leukemia adds another dimension to Delia's story. Does she have to have the same outcome? How can she circumvent that? The book is really important read as well as funny and loving and scary and about the importance of love and friends and the importance of life. So you did a great job, Delia. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much, much, Joan. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. It's an honor. You, you, you too. Delia Efron, Left on 10th. Get it. It's wherever books are sold. 
And I'm Joan Hamburg. Much more on WABC. The First Lady of New York Radio, Joan Hamburg. Entertaining and informative. Talk Radio 77 WABC. One day not long ago, a producer friend of mine, Susan Gallen, an award-winning producer, called me and said, I have someone I want you to meet, and I need you to read her book. You are really going to think it's something special. And then she told me about Eleanor Reeser, who is a Tony-nominated director, a television actress, a playwright, former artistic director of the world's oldest Yiddish theater, and a singer who's worked everywhere in festivals all over the world and in our city. And Eleanor is a renowned storyteller in both English and Yiddish. Her parents survived the Holocaust, and she has a podcast in conjunction with Yale University, Those Who Were There, Voices of the Holocaust. This memoir, The Letters Project, A Daughter's Journey, is available wherever books are sold. So you say, Eleanor, and welcome to you. Oh, thank you so much, John. Well, it's, and you went through her things and you found an old leather bag which had letters in it. But I'm going to let you explain. Well, when my mother passed in 1986, I found these letters in her lingerie drawer, 56 of them, all written in German, all written from 1949, all written from the man who would become my father, who had died in 1976, who she had divorced in 1966. And so it was really really unclear why she kept these letters for so long and never told me about them. And I myself put the letters in my own lingerie drawer because I just didn't know what to do with them. And translating 56 handwritten letters is more difficult than one might imagine. And so it wasn't until 2018, 30 years later, Mm. um, I was uh, acting in Paula Vogel's Indecent on Broadway, and I had some extra money and decided to have them translated. And the book is about these letters and where they took me to Germany and Israel and into my own life and into the world that I had no idea existed and who my parents actually were. You know, that's the part two that is so fascinating because even if you did not grow up with a family or in a family that suffered the trauma that your family did, and even suffering in America when your father finally made it, your father, whom you knew as your father growing up, was a totally different person from the man behind those letters that you started to read as you had them translated. Yes, I mean, that that indeed was so incredible. The guy I knew, the guy who was my father, who came to America in, 1940, in 1950, was a sweatshop worker, 
Uh, he had funny accent. He had false teeth. He didn't belong here. He, he was an other. And that's who I thought he was, Joan. That's who I thought my father was, illiterate, etc. And that's who I thought I was the daughter of. Right. But I and you weren't proud. I was not proud. I'm I'm you know, I'm saddened to say I was not proud. Au contraire, right? I was kind of ashamed and kind of embarrassed and kind of wished that I came from a family that looked like Dick and Jane and Spot and Puff, you know, um, a family where the father sat on a big chair reading the newspaper, smoking a pipe. Mm -hmm. And that's not who my father was, at least not in America. And what I learned was that I, I met my, my father was 50 when I was born and died when I was 70, when he was 76. And so two thirds of his life had passed he, before I knew him. I knew him in the last third and in the, the last third post Auschwitz, post death march, post horrors of Nazi Germany. That's who I knew that's when I knew him before that time I learned in this journey on from my book was that he was a guy. I mean, he was attractive and hot and poetic and um, Loved your a man mother. of the community. And, and, and I learned how strong he was, Joan, right? Of course. And a man who had a real life and yes. real friends. And but your journey was incredible too, because once you got into it and meeting a whole different world involved with translating these letters and who had histories too and past, this adventure took you to Germany, to other places that you never even thought you would go to or truthfully never cared about much in those years. <laughs> That's right. And and it's a great word. You're, it was an adventure. It's like it's a bit of an adventure story uh, mixed with a mystery of just because I was so unprepared. I was so uh, open um, because my life in the theater is so improvisational, really. And I'm so not a researcher that I just followed my nose, and I was really lucky, wasn't I? The people that helped me, the strangers that led me, um, you know, my editor said something like, uh, this, this journey was, was uh, designed from above, you know, um, it, it was a bit, a bit magical the way pieces fell into place, and it was just one surprise <laughs> after another. Well, and by coincidence, the letters revealed names. Now, this is years and years ago, and yet many of these names led to real people and real contacts. I particularly yeah. was enamored with when there was a man who was one of your father's good friends, photographs, and you found the name of his daughter and then found her when you went abroad and first she was like, you know, who is this? And <laughs> then she agreed, 
all right, I'll meet you when you said you had a photograph of her father. But the likelihood of all this happening is so remote and rare. Yeah, yeah. That that meeting was remarkable. Uh, I, I went to one particular town, and in these letters, indeed, as you say, there are these names that meant nothing to me. And uh, I went to one town, and a rabbi said, well, you know, you should go to Stuttgart because there's a woman there who knows everything about the Jews of that time. And he spelled her name for me, and I, I thought, oh, my God, that name is so familiar. And as you say, I wound up meeting her. She was born five days before me, the same year, and her father, she knew the names in the letter. This one, my father missed out on a community of people who he knew and loved in order to be with my mother in the United States where he kind of gave up everything to be with her. And then, of course, the marriage didn't work out and... Um, the so American it, it, dream wasn't happening. No, no, not for him. And, and it was, you know, it, it was a life, as there's a Yiddish expression, you know, such a life you wish on enemies. Right. And that was my father's life. But in Europe, he was something. And this woman who I met, Um, I wasn't even looking for her, Joan. I mean, it wasn't like I thought, oh, I'll try to track down the names in these letters. I didn't. It just fell down like, you know, secret word from Groucho. And and, uh, that's that's how it went. That's how the whole trip wound up uh, being. And then, Eleanor, I'm talking to Eleanor Reeser, talking about the Letters Project. And Eleanor is very involved in the theater. She's a singer, a lecturer, a writer, a producer, a director, and went through an experience that was rather extraordinary. She found her family through letters that were in German that she had translated, and in a way found herself too, and found relatives that you hadn't thought about or hadn't been in the same way, connected through a past. And that yes. had to be eye-opening. It, it, really, it really was eye-opening. Uh, one of the people who helped me took me to this memorial. I mean, there's, there are many memorials in Germany erected to the people who suffered and were killed during the war. I went to this one, this uh, transport and it was certainly innocent enough. It was just a memorial, but it was like Maya Lin's Vietnam Memorial, and all these names were inscribed on what was really a group tombstone. And I found my father's, I found basically my name, my father's last name, with the name of his first wife, who was killed, and his daughter who was uh, four and killed, and I realized it hadn't occurred to me because it just hadn't that she was my half-sister. So, but it was a really inspiring trip, Joan. 
Holocaust survivors. And mm-hmm. But when I read the account of my father in Auschwitz and on the death march, I understood that I was the daughter of a fighter, of a man who fought with every breath of his life, with every cell in his right, body. And that's what I realized everyone was, you know. And he uh, wouldn't, I, who, little things that you realized, he slept with his shoes on. Yeah. Because he was so afraid, as they were, that someone would take them. And little tiny things that one would never think of. So, yeah. Eleanor, now that you've done this and refound yourself in many ways, what are you planning? You're a storyteller and a theater person. What's going to happen with the Letters Project? Where are you yeah. going to go with it? Thanks, Joan. Yeah. I, I, you know, I'm, I've never worked so hard in my life. I mean, uh, promoting things, it's so important for me that people read this because it 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 showed me who I was and I think it could show people who they are and how to look at their parents and history in a way that they hadn't thought of before and um you know I'm hoping <laughs> my my secret hope of course is uh that it becomes a kind of film for Netflix. And I was listening to your Juliana Margulies interview the other day, and I thought, oh, yeah, Juliana Margulies, I'd like to get her the book so that she star in this movie. <laughs> that would <laughs> be, why a, not? That's right. That's right. I mean, I when you first to... found a package of letters, it never dawned on you no. where this would take you. And what it's done for you. And it's also interesting when you think about your parents and your family and your father, and you were a good daughter. A lot of it was your sense of obligation. But you didn't really know this man, like so many of us didn't know our parents, even without the terrible trauma your family had gone through. We simply, they never revealed themselves. And your father never disclosed all that he had been through and what his life was like. It yeah, took I you. Mean, how could you know what what parent would tell their want to tell their child the, the the worst nightmare you couldn't even imagine? Right. I mean, what who would want their child to know that they lived in hell and what hell was like, and also. At the time that so my father died in 1976, just uh, 30 years after liberation from Auschwitz, right? So it was still so new. It wasn't like now uh, when the Holocaust is a, a, a huge topic. These people were not encouraged to speak. They were encouraged after the war to be quiet, and and nobody had heard of PTSD, and nobody treated them. Nobody said to them, "Oh my goodness, you 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 lived. What can we do for you? How can we help you? You're a strong person, not a weak person." I mean, it was so. We so did not 
care for these people. We we marginalize them and minimize them, and uh, it, it we really recognize wasn't. their suffering, but Correct. we didn't want to share it or them to share it with the world. They were people were afraid. Too many wounds open up. Too much horror. But you sort of brave the storm and mm-hmm. carried on with it, entrusting a lot of it to then strangers who became yeah. part of your extended family, who wept with you, who themselves couldn't believe what was unfolding in one man's letters to a woman he would later marry. Yeah, yeah. The the help from strangers, and in particular German strangers, was so um uh, they were so kind to me and so interested and thoughtful and indeed you know the woman who translated was a stranger to me and yet we looked over the we found different transcripts and we looked over them and wept together yes yes yeah, yeah. It's really amazing, and I have a feeling you've just started on yet another adventure with the Letters Project, A Daughter's Journey. How did your family, before I let you go, react to all this? You talk about relatives, people who are like, yeah, let me know, it's it's interesting, but sort of brushed it aside. You know, it's a great question, Joan, about I was very, you know, I wrote bravely and I thought I'm going to I'm going to write what I think and I'm going to say what I think. And people who have written memoirs before said to me, listen, you better be careful because people who are alive may be angry at you. And I thought, oh, no, I don't care. I'm (laughs) I'm just going to be true to myself. And people did get angry with me. Um, when the book was published, and it was very upsetting. Why to were me. they angry? Well, because it, I, I sometimes I say things. I'm, I'm pretty direct, and in the book, uh, if I think something that's you perhaps not that kind, I say so, and then of course it transforms, and I learn really that my what I've said was not true, and I say that I made a mistake, but they go through a bit of a a, a not-so-positive um, experience. And so, but everything's okay now. Well, People part of that is they, right, they have to look at themselves that's in correct. a light. A true or false, there's some reality to all of it. That that is absolutely correct, and there have been things that certain people have not looked at for decades that this book kind of forced them to look at, and at first they were angry about it, but now it has enhanced their life, I would say, and in, it, it's even more meaningful because they got to shed something that they didn't know they were carrying with them for decades. Exactly. And they get to add the real story of a flesh and blood human being who survived the worst atrocities Mm. only to find disappointment in our great country Mm. 
And yet he left a story that's forever. Thank you, Eleanor. Eleanor oh, Reeser. Well, thank you. I just want to thank, thank you so much. No, it was incredibly moving. I learned and I suffered along with you. The Letters Project, A Daughter's Journey. Well, I can't wait to hear what's happening next with this. Take care of yourself, Eleanor. And I Thank hope you. You too, again. Joan. Thank you. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to WABC, a fascinating read, everyone. I think you're really going to get a lot out of it. Stay tuned. The First Lady of New York Radio. This is Ask Joan. You know, before I leave you, I want to talk about a little thing, a little issue that I had, and a lot of you have been asking me. I have a raised bed vegetable garden, and I have two huge whiskey barrels that I use for herbs. It's been very cold out on the east end of Long Island, wind, cold, damp. So I wanted to know a couple of things. Is it too late to start with seeds for your vegetables? And does it matter where you get them? What time? Tell me. So here's what I found out. You still can plant seeds depending upon the vegetables and local soil and weather conditions. If the soil is too cold, the seeds won't germinate. So you can call, and I mentioned that to you last week, the local cooperative extension service. It's free. And they'll give you all the information you need. And in New Jersey, for example, they said after the last frost, which was May 15th, you can put live plants in plus seeds, peas, cucumbers, beets, carrots, peppers, and you can also plan a fall vegetable garden. So where do you buy the best seeds? Now there's something called Row 7 Seed Company. It's unique. And their mission is to change the food system from the ground up. The seeds are certified organic, non-GMO, unpatented, and produced in the USA. The company was co-founded by one of my favorite people. As a person, as a restaurateur, brilliant, a chef, Daniel Barber from Blue Hill, and his vegetable breeder and seedsman. They work with breeders, farmers, chefs to develop new variety of seeds that make an impact on the soil and on the table. The seeds sell out fast, and you've got to get them on the website, row7, it's the number seven, seeds.com. So sign up on the website, row7seeds.com, and get notified when seeds become available. They have 15 varieties now. Some are sold out on the web, but they have abundance potato, midnight room of tomato, peppers, patchwork pepper, beets, cucumbers. They have a lot of stuff, and it is a great company. So go online to row7, the number seven, seeds.com. And this is co-founded by Chef Daniel Barba and by his vegetable breeder and his seedsman. And I'm telling you, you will not do better. You're going to get the best and you are going to be so happy when these seeds rear their little heads. So 
Enjoy all of this and enjoy the rest of your Sunday. I'm Joan Hamburg and we'll be back next Sunday starting at 2 o'clock.